The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast episode 9. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for taking the time to listen today. The goal of our podcast is to help our listeners expand their opera knowledge, and our content is always drawn from live events, classes, and lectures that we run throughout the opera season here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today's episode topic is actually drawn from an opera boot camp lecture that we did at the Cosmopolitan Club here on the Upper East Side, and that is on the Masonic and symbolic elements of the Magic Flute. Now, if you don't know the plot of the opera, I do suggest you read through a plot synopsis before you dive into the rest of the podcast, as there is quite a bit of uh, twists and turns, one could say, in the plot. And also, we're not going to go kind of blow by blow through the plot in this particular episode, although I promise I will try and explain as much as possible of the context of certain scenes that we come across in our discussion. So let's get started and just dive right in. Die Zauberflöte, or The Magic Flute, is an opera in two acts by none other than Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, with a German libretto by Emanuel Schikaneder. Although I will say, as a side note or footnote, that there is quite a bit of debate about whether or not Schikaneder actually wrote the words, but to get into that would be an entire podcast in and of itself, so perhaps we'll save that for another day. The work is in the form of a zingspiel, meaning that it includes singing and spoken dialogue, and this was a form of theater entertainment that was very popular in Vienna in the late 1700s. The work premiered on September 30, 1791, at Schikaneder's Theater, the Freihaus Theater auf der Wieden in Vienna. This theater was located on the outskirts of town, a little bit outside of the main city center. Now, for some background, Emanuel Schikaneder took over running the Freihaus Theater after Wieden in the summer of 1789, and he brought with him a whole host of new talent that infused the company with some new energy. One of Schikaneder's new initiatives was the creation of several magic operas, or zingspiels that told stories that drew from fairy tales, folklore, and enchantment in various forms. He was looking for something that would have immediate appeal to audiences of the time, and he really found that in this kind of magic opera zingspiel form. You had spoken dialogue and musical numbers that were in the language of the common people. You have room for comic elements, for serious elements. You have a perfect platform to make larger-than-life fantastical stories come to life in front of your audience, and this was what audiences had an appetite for at the time. It was trendy. It was what everyone was interested in. So Schikaneder actually produced a whole series of magic operas that he mounted on the stage, and Mozart's Die Zauberflöte falls towards the end of this series. But of all the works that were part of this kind of larger initiative by Schikaneder, the Magic Flute is by far the most enduring. In the present day, it is one of the most popular operas in the repertory, and it really was an instant hit when it made its premiere. 
If you take a look at the roster of singers, the original cast from 1791, you can see that this was really a very tight-knit group of singers that brought this opera to the stage for the first time. Emmanuel Schikaneder himself sang the role of Papageno, and he actually had some family in the cast. His older brother sang one of the three priests, and his niece, Anna Schikaneder, sang one of the three boys. We also have two husband and wife duos that were in the first cast of the opera. Franz Gerl was the first Zarastro, and his wife, Barbara, sang the first Papagena. Tamino, the first ever Tamino, was Benedict Schack, and his wife, Elizabeth, sang one of the first three ladies. And Mozart himself had a family member in the cast, the first Queen of the Night, who was sung by his sister-in-law, Josefa Hoffer. Now, one of the most hotly debated topics surrounding this opera is the influence of Masonic symbolism in the work as a whole. There is certainly a lot of scholarship on this, arguments back and forth for and against whether or not a lot of this symbolism that is discussed was intentional, was deliberately put there, was some kind of clue to deeper meaning. All of these kinds of things are a part of the discussion of Freemasonry throughout the work. It is a well-known fact that Mozart was a Freemason, which meant that he belonged to a secret club or organization of men that were like-minded in their interest in philosophy, the sciences, and their desire to make society a better place through art, knowledge, and action. There was a strong moral and benevolent side of Freemasonry in Mozart's time, and the Freemasons provided an immense amount of social services or charitable endeavors for the benefit of society, such as funding orphanages and feeding the hungry. The Brotherhood of Freemasons grew immensely during the late 1700s. It became very popular, and it was so popular that Emperor Joseph II actually restricted the amount of Masonic lodges or chapters of the Masons that could be organized in Vienna and in rural towns, despite the good work that Masons tended to do. It is believed that he did this because the initiated Freemasons were quickly growing to outnumber high-ranking political officials. Becoming a member of the Masons required initiation, and much of the information we know about Masonic activity in Mozart's time comes from pieces of surviving evidence that depict rituals, such as paintings and etchings. In these paintings and etchings, there is a lot of visual imagery that gives us clues to different symbols that are of importance to the Masons. For example, there's usually five-pointed stars, an hourglass, or a square and a trowel. We believe these are linked to the different degrees or levels that one can achieve as a Mason. There's also usually, of course, lots of groups of three, so triangular shapes, pyramids, candles that are arranged in threes. And there is usually in these paintings a depiction of a man kind of in the center of a group of his brother Masons, and the man in the center is usually blindfolded, going through some kind of ritual process. Aside from paintings and etchings, there are also several historical documents that have survived, such as a list of lodge members and descriptions of their activities in journals and letters. But altogether, the evidence we have is actually rather scarce. The majority of details regarding the full meaning of all of these symbols, as well as the inner workings of belonging to this society, are actually a very tightly guarded secret of its members, even to the present day. 
We know that Mozart petitioned to become a part of a Masonic lodge in Vienna during the latter part of 1784. And the term lodge is a Masonic term that basically equates to local chapter. So there was a larger organization of Freemasons across Europe, and then cities could have several Masonic lodges within their city limits, and each lodge kind of operated more or less autonomously from each other, and they governed the entrance of new members autonomously, even though they were linked by this larger ideology that they all shared. So we know that Mozart petitioned to become a Mason in 1784, and we know that he climbed through the ranks of the Freemasonry membership, if you will, fairly quickly. So there are actually tiers in the levels of Masonry. So when you enter, you enter as an apprentice, and then there is a craftsman, and then there's a kind of master Mason level. And so we believe that by April of 1785, Mozart had reached that master Mason level in the local lodge that he belonged to. And interestingly, shortly after Mozart became a Freemason, we know that his father, Leopold Mozart, also joined a Masonic lodge in Vienna. And so there were actually quite a few people that we can place within Mozart's circle of close family and friends that were also associated with Freemasonry that we know were part of the Masonic Brotherhood. For example, Composer, very well-known, close friend of Mozart's and colleague, Franz Josef Haydn, was a Freemason. Mozart's brother-in-law, Josef Lang, was a Freemason. One of Mozart's patrons and a kind of fellow music enthusiast, Baron Gottfried von Swieten, was also a, was also a Freemason. And Anton Stadler, who was a friend, a colleague, and actually a very famous clarinetist and basset horn player at the time, was a Freemason. And it is Anton Stadler, as an interesting side note, that Mozart wrote several clarinet parts and pieces for, uh, the Clarinet Quintet K581 and the Clarinet Concerto K622, as well as the clarinet and basset horn parts in La Clemenza di Tito, were written specifically with Anton Stadler in mind. Now, before we dive into looking at the music itself and the plot and talking about all the different possible connections between Masonic elements and the opera, it's important that we approach this discussion with caution. So I'm kind of putting a disclaimer on what we are about to delve into, because really this is a very hotly contested area of research. There are several excellent books and articles that present different perspectives on this particular debate. There are excellent arguments for and against the interpretation of Masonic symbolism. And really, there is a lot of information that you have to get through if you wanted to have a comprehensive understanding of the debate as a whole. So as we move forward, we just need to keep in mind that we will never know exactly what Mozart meant by these different elements that we discuss. We will never know exactly what kind of meaning he was trying to communicate, and we will never know exactly what secrets he was or was not attempting to reveal through the opera. 
So what we are going to do is focus on a select group of symbols that I think are the most dominant, they're kind of the most prevalent themes in the opera, and we're going to talk about how those particular ideas and symbols are connected with Freemasonry, and also talk about how they manifest themselves in the opera. We're going to try and connect as much as we can with the actual music itself, so that you can hear the inclusion of these symbols or possible interpretations of these symbols in the actual score itself. And we'll try and get through as many possible connections as we can. So the first symbol we are going to talk about is the number three. The number three has symbolic and archetypal connections with thousands of cultural points throughout history and across the globe. And it is especially important in religious symbolism. We have lots of layered meaning in mythology and folklore traditions related to the number three, from Norse gods to fairy tales. Uh, Just think of the three little pigs. There's lots of threes in fairy tales. And for some, it is a lucky number, three times the charm. For others, it's a bad omen. While we certainly don't know all of the types of meaning associated with the number three in regards to Freemasonry, we do know that it is a very important number and it does hold a lot of important symbolic weight, and we can certainly speculate on what some of those possible meanings may be. So first, there are theories that Freemasonry has its origins as an organization, as an ideology, in either the work of medieval stonemasons or that of the Knights Templar. In both cases, these men would have been devout Christians believing in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There are also theories that Freemasonry draws upon ancient religions and traditions of mysticism, from the ancient Druids to the ancient Egyptians, and several other traditions in between. So suffice it to say, the number three is believed to have some kind of important tie to the roots and origins of Freemasonry in one way or another. Now, despite the very secretive aspect of Freemasonry, we know that there are several important rituals and ceremonies that are part of being in a Masonic Lodge that also include the number three and how they are organized. For example, there are three kinds of membership, as we already mentioned, levels or degrees in Freemasonry. There is also said to be three main tenets of Freemasonry, three moral pillars of Freemasonry, three greater lights and three lesser lights, and the list could go on. So if you are looking for the use of the number three in Die Zauberflöte, you find it just about everywhere, and you don't really have to look very far before you start to hear it. Even if we just look at the characters that are in the opera, we already have lots of groups of three. There are more or less three main characters, Tamino, Papageno, and Pamina. We also have a group of three ladies, we have a group of three boys, and we have a group of three priests. In the plot structure, there are three trials. In the scenery, there are often three pyramids or three temples with three entrances or portals. Now, can we actually hear the use of the number three in the music itself? Definitely. Let's start with the overture, right at the beginning. Listen here just to the first few bars. Right? 
right away we have three distinct statements of chords. Some scholars say that Freemasons always signal their arrival at a lodge meeting with three knocks on the door, and that these three chords at the beginning of the overture are a parallel for those knocks. Now in the middle of the overture, these three knocks come back, sounding like this. So very similar to the first statement, just slightly different rhythm and slightly different orchestration. Now another aspect of this overture that is also mentioned as being very Masonic in nature is the key signature that Mozart chooses. Now you can't really hear this element unless you have perfect pitch, but if you were to look at the score, you would see that the overture is written in E-flat major, and E-flat major has three flats in the key signature. Let's listen to the opening chords again, and this time we are going to keep going so that you can hear the opening melodic theme. And as you listen, just think of this other little tidbit. Even though Mozart never explicitly said this, some people believe that the opening theme of the overture is meant to sound like stonemasons pounding their hammers as a reference to the origins of masonry itself. Let's give it a listen.
Now, if you're thinking, oh, I think I recognize that, it's because what you just heard where we faded out is always how we begin every single podcast. So now you know where we get our little theme music from. All right. Now, as I mentioned the rundown of characters, we also have these three boys and the three ladies. So let's take a closer look at them for a moment. First, we have the three boys or the three spirits that accompany or guide Tamino and Papageno at different points throughout the opera. Generally speaking, children can be seen as a symbol of purity or a symbol of the higher self. This is not necessarily Masonic, but it can be connected to the Masonic idea of rising to a higher level, a higher level of consciousness hovering over you. So oftentimes, if you're watching productions of the Magic Flute, you will see these three boy spirits kind of descend from the sky. Sometimes they're in a hot air balloon. Sometimes they're in a kind of a floating chariot or on a cloud. Sometimes they just fly in. So the idea of hovering is also strongly connected with them visually. Now, there is a scene where they are sent out to look for Tamino and Papageno and help them when they are in need. That is generally the role of the three boys throughout the opera. They provide guidance. And so in this next excerpt, we're going to hear this moment of the three boys guiding Tamino to the temple. As you listen to the music, you will hear that there are three harmony parts, and it's very striking. There are three boys, each boy gets their own part, and the accompaniment underneath them is very simple. We are really focused on the trio of voices, and it has almost a religious tone to it, kind of like the harmonies are creating a very hymn-like effect, and there's also lots of parallel thirds in the harmonies as well, so again, a kind of nested or embedded symbolism of three. Also, what they say to Tamino is very Masonic in flavor. They give him three commands. They say, be patient, be steadfast, and be silent. And they tell him that if he can achieve this, if he holds fast to these things, then he will be able to rescue Pamina.
Now, this happens towards the end of Act 1, this scene with the three boys leading Tamino to the temple. But if we go back to the beginning of the opera, after the overture, Act 1, Scene 1, we encounter several things that scholars have singled out as being linked with Masonic symbolism. First off, we have the serpent. Although the significance of this image in Freemasonry is fairly hotly debated, there are various iconographies of snakes and serpents that are prevalent in Masonic art and also that can be linked with the kind of ancient Egyptian element of Masonic history. Other scholars believe that the serpent is connected to the Masonic belief regarding the creation of the universe, the downfall of Adam and Eve. The interpretation I like best is that some scholars think the snake represents a kind of hope triumphing over evil. So the fact that the snake needs to be slayed in the opening scene is somehow symbolic for God giving humans the power to trample the snake underfoot. And the reason I kind of gravitate towards this theory is because to me it makes the most sense in the larger context of the opera. Tamino goes on a quest that eventually becomes a triumph over evil and an entrance into the realm of the enlightened. Also in Act 1 in the opening, Tamino is lost in a forest and he is running from the serpent. So another possible way of seeing this is that it is metaphorical for Tamino beginning his search for enlightenment, even if it's only a subconscious process. The three ladies killing the serpent could possibly represent the Queen of the Night attempting to kill all hope of good triumphing over evil, but that is also a fairly strongly contested view. Also, as a kind of side note to this, another element that is very popular in the interpretation of Masonic symbolism in the magic flute is an emphasis on ancient Egyptian symbolism. And so it's believed that there is a strong kind of thread of influence, especially at this time in Vienna, of ancient Egyptian elements incorporating that into Masonic ideology. And part of that is the worship of Isis. So in many versions of the Magic Flute, in many stage productions, you see the three ladies often wearing a black veil of some kind, and many scholars say that the black veil is a reference to the veiled god Isis. Let's give a listen to this opening scene. We're going to hear Tamino crying for help. You're going to hear the slaying of the snake with the three ladies making an appearance. And so really listen for the kind of the story that is immediately represented to see if any of the particular possible interpretations resonates with you as you're listening to the music itself. Schützen, schützen, retten, 
The next concept that we're going to cover and really is one of the biggest ones, I think the most predominant ones in the opera, is the concept of dualisms and polarities in the construction of the work on multiple levels. So there are a plethora of dualisms in the opera that can be interpreted in a variety of ways, a plethora of polarities. And so just right off the bat, I think it's fairly easy to pinpoint the realms of Zoroastro and the Queen of the Night as representing these kind of polar opposites. At various points throughout the opera, they are associated with a kind of day versus night, sun versus moon, light versus darkness, and good versus evil. We also have a kind of dualism of men and women throughout the opera. We have character names that are perfectly matched with each other. Prince Tamino, Princess Pamina, Papageno, Papagena. There's a balance of the genders, a balance between the names, a balance between the kind of presence of men and women throughout the work. We also have the Queen of the Night and Zarastro balance each other, and also Zarastro's realm contains male priests, and the Queen of the Night's realm contains female servants. And then even within the singular genders of the opera, especially within the men, we see a kind of balance between the intellectual and the everyman, and we get that with Tamino and Papageno. We have these two kinds of men that are on this quest together that represent two different approaches to life and two different goals, two different sets of desires. Now, there are many ways that you could say the music and the magic flute personifies this idea of polarities and dualisms, extreme difference or balancing of elements. And so we're going to listen to a couple different examples to give you a taste of how these things might play out as they are all fairly different. So the first example we're going to look at is the introduction of Papageno versus the first big aria of Tamino. So Papageno's first aria, De Fogelfanga bin Ichia, is when he is basically introducing who he is and what he does. He's saying, I am a simple bird catcher, my name is Papageno, and catching birds is what I do. And so the whole text as you go through really does have a flavor of this kind of very simple man with a simple job who is just kind of getting what he can out of life. All he really wants to make his dreams come true is a pretty little wife and good food to eat. So as you listen, notice a few things in the music itself. The melody is very folk-like. It's very simple. It has a kind of catchiness to it. It's also strophic, meaning that it's the same music repeated several times over. All of these things signal a kind of simplicity, a beautiful simplicity, where the music perfectly captures exactly the description that Papageno is giving of himself. Der Vogelfänger bin 
ich ja diese Lustigkeit so, so, so. Ich hunge länger, bin bekannt bei Alt und Jung im ganzen Land. Mädchen möchte ich, ich bin sie nun zehn weiß für mich. Dann sperrte ich sie bei mir ein und alle Mädchen wären mein. In contrast to Papageno's aria, we have Tamino's first big aria, Die Bildnis ist schön, where he has basically been given the portrait of Pamina and he instantly falls in love with her. The music he is given is very noble, the harmonies are more complex than Papageno, and it doesn't have that folk-like catchiness of Papageno. It is much more introspective, a much more complex sentiment that he is contemplating and expressing, and all of that comes through in the music itself. And perhaps one of the most striking examples of extreme polarities between characters, a very strong and distinct musical difference between the sound of one character and the sound of the other, is the Queen of the Night and Zarastro. The Queen of the Night is all rage. She has a very Sturm und Drang kind of flavor to her arias, and her big famous aria, Rage Burns Within My Soul, really does show the kind of minor dark side of the Queen of the Night.
then immediately following this rage aria in the opera, we then have an aria from Zarastro, where you get a completely different musical language, a completely different feeling. Everything becomes gentler, more patient sounding, even the contrast in their voices going from the extreme high tessitura and range of the coloratura queen of the night, going all the way down to the lowest voice type possible in the bass. All of this adds a further contrast between these two characters so that we really get the feeling that they are of two completely different worlds working for two completely different causes. The next symbol we are going to look at is the padlock, and this is part of a particularly comic moment in the opera where Papageno has lied to Tamino about slaying the serpent. He tries to win points with Tamino by trying to look brave, but really it was the three ladies who slayed the serpent, and so as punishment, they padlock his mouth shut, and he can't actually say anything. So the padlock could be linked to the secrecy of Freemasonry, the idea of being silent, keeping things under wraps, and also knowing when not to speak, and those types of ideas. But it is also said to be symbolic of a completely different vein of Masonic ideas in relation to women. And so... A few times in the opera, there's reference to women's idle chatter or women being chatty. And so the padlock can be seen as symbolic for a kind of controlling or um, dealing with the kind of chattiness of women. And yet another perspective that could be 
possibly within the same vein, though perhaps not, is that it could be symbolic for the taming and disciplining of the human uh, having kind of logic and rational thinking overcome base animal instincts. So there are a few different ways that you could interpret the symbolic meaning of the padlock. But nonetheless, in the opera, it is Papageno who gets his mouth locked shut, all for being caught in a lie about slaying the serpent. Der Arme kann von Strafe sagen, denn seine Sprache ist dahin. Ich kann nichts tun, als dich beklagen, weil ich zu schwach zu helfen bin. The next major Masonic element we're going to look at are the trials of initiation. Despite the thick layers of secrecy one encounters when trying to decode the inner workings of Freemasonry, we do have quite a bit of historical evidence of Freemasonry in Mozart's time that show individuals participating in a series of trials as part of being allowed into the Masonic Lodge. So it's kind of a way of initiating their membership. One possible way of viewing the plot of the opera as a whole is that it tells the story of Tamino's trials and initiation into Zarastro's brotherhood, so kind of a direct parallel for the process that one might go through if they were going to join a Masonic lodge. So what are the trials if we take this view that Tamino has to go through? You're probably not surprised, but there's actually more than one way of interpreting the trials that are in the opera. So the most common way of looking at this is that there are three trials, and there are actually only three trials that are explicitly mentioned in the opera. So trial number one is the trial of silence, which some scholars link to the ability to withstand the guiles of women, since Tamino is forced to first remain silent when he's interacting with the three ladies, and then again he has to remain silent when he desires to speak with Pamina. Other scholars kind of reject this particular interpretation as being kind of gender-based and believe that it is basically showing a triumph over the forces that dominate or impair your judgment. And then there is also the Masonic Creed that has been translated from Latin as meaning listen, observe, and be quiet, which could also be where the trial of silence comes from. Then the second and third trial that is explicitly mentioned in the opera is the trial of fire and the trial of water, which Tamino and Pamina go through together. The fact that they are fighting natural elements is linked to the Masonic belief in the power of natural elements, fire, water, earth, and air. And then what actually happens to Tamino and Pamina during the trial of fire and water is never actually revealed to us. We only know that they succeed when they come out safely on the other side. Another nod to Masonic secrecy. Now another way of looking at the trials and another theory that has been proposed is that there is actually five trials that the characters endure throughout the opera. The trial of silence and then the trials that relate to the four main elements, earth, fire, water, and air. 
In Jacques Chaillet's book titled The Magic Flute Unveiled, he discusses how Tamino, Pamina, Papageno, and Papagena each take part from his perspective or endure all five of these trials in their own way, even though the trial of silence, the trial of fire, and the trial of water are the only ones that are explicitly referenced in the libretto. In Chaillet's analysis, he actually goes through and presents an argument for how every single character goes through all five trials, even though they are going through some of these trials of earth and air in a more symbolic way or in a less obvious way. Going back to the trial of silence, it's interesting that even though Pamina does not technically endure the trial of silence herself, she is not forced to not speak to anybody, she is a part of it because she endures the effect of it because of her relationship with Tamino. So in a way, his trial of silence becomes her trial as well. It becomes her own pain. And Tamino's silence leads her to questioning his love for her. And all this is expressed in one of the most heart-wrenching arias in the repertory, Ach ich Fuss.
Going now to the trial of fire and water, there are some very interesting things to note in this scene as a whole, and it does actually contain some of my favorite moments musically. The trials are something that only Tamino actually has to endure, but Pamina willingly endures with him. She hears Tamino's voice, and she basically says, Wherever you go, I will go, and we'll do it together. Many people believe that Pamina's active participation in the trials and willingness to go through them is a kind of nod towards the Masonic ideas of equality. Let's give this moment a listen so you can really hear the kind of beautiful call and answer or back and forth as Tamino and Pamina are finally reunited again, having overcome the trauma of the trial of silence. Then when we go to the music that accompanies the trial of fire and water, we are never shown or told exactly what Tamino and Pamina are enduring as they go through these trials, and the music itself never gives us any hint as to what traumas they have encountered. We just hear a simple march with a delicate flute rhythm steadily over top, presumably the flute melody that Tamino is playing as he goes through these trials, and it is that music that accompanies the entire process that is a defining moment for these two characters. final scene, we have a kind of combination of this journey that Tamino and Pamina have been on, and several of the themes of the opera start to come together at once. We have Tamino and Pamina entering the Brotherhood, and there is this large chorus that is sung that's kind of preceded by Zarastro talking about how the sun has expelled the night and hypocrisy is over. So we have this allusion to the entering of an enlightened realm, no more darkness, kind of achieving a higher level of knowledge, a higher level of being for Tamino and Pamina. 
There is also a special thank you to Isis and Osiris in this chorus. So you have a linking of Tamino and Pamina having entered this enlightened realm, this higher state of self, this triumph of knowledge where day has banished darkness with this Masonic interest in ancient Egyptian symbols and religion and gods and goddesses. So you have that connection that can be made in the final scene as well. Thank you so much for listening to episode 9 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I hope you enjoyed this alternative approach to the Magic Flute, and I hope it will add to your viewing pleasure if you are watching the Mets live in HD Encore presentation. Don't forget it's coming up on Saturday, December the 12th.
We are very happy to be bringing you these podcasts as an entirely free resource for opera lovers, but if you feel that you have received value from our programming, we do hope you will consider making a donation towards the continuation of the Met Opera Guild podcast at metguild.org podcast. Every little donation helps us. We have a goal always of bringing opera education to the widest possible audience. And so anything you can give will definitely help move us closer and closer to that goal. In next week's episode, due to popular demand, I will be back presenting another voice types lecture, similar to episode five, where we talked all about different types of sopranos. But this time we are going to be focusing on the much beloved tenors category. I have lots of beautiful music, beautiful singers, excellent examples to share, so I'm very excited to be bringing that to you next week. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.